scripture reading for this morning's message from 1 Kings chapter 19. First Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 18. This is God's holy, inerrant word. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, it is, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life. To take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint 
Hazael, to, to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola, pardon me, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I'm going to invite Pastor Gavin now to come. He's going to pray and then minister to us from this word. Thanks, Gavin. Well, it's a great privilege to bring God's word to you today, uh, especially as uh, Amanda and I are going on sabbatical for a little while, so we won't see you. We'll miss you greatly. We love you greatly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer briefly. So, Lord God, gracious Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that you would feed us uh, by your Holy Spirit, that we might see Christ um, do a lot of heart work here, I pray, deep, uh, penetrating, and lasting. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The title of this message is Elijah's Spiritual Depression and God's Sovereign Love. Elijah's Spiritual Depression and God's Sovereign Love. I've been preaching through, uh, if you've been here regularly, uh, messages in uh, the letter of James in the New Testament. And in James chapter 5, verse 17, James writes that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. This is really significant because he, like us, was prone to discouragement, to disillusionment, and ultimately to spiritual depression. And in the passage today in 1 Kings, we see that Elijah got really depressed, really depressed. Several of you, uh, many of you, have been listening to Pastor Paul's recent series on, on depression, which is, I believe, recorded, and I commend you to go and, and listen to those messages again in depth. And you'll know that although the quote-unquote miserable Christian might seem like a contradiction in terms, to paraphrase Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, it is a reality in life. Discouragement and depression for many Christians brings out a sense of hopelessness, even doubts about God's goodness, even about their own salvation. And God even shows us such is the comprehensiveness of His Word that the depth of human despair can feel like hopelessness at times. So that... Um, Psalm 88 simply ends with the word darkness. That's all the psalmist can see. So friends, you can be a true believer, and yet you can experience the darkness so greatly at times that you don't feel or you don't see anything else but that darkness. Which means that if you're here today and you feel discouraged and overwhelmed, this is a message of illumination about what it means for a believer to experience God's grace and be brought from despair to hope. The question is, does everyone experience depression like this? Well, not everyone is prone to a melancholy in the way that others are. They're simply not wired that way. 
There may be physical factors that contribute to one person's propensity to spiral downwards that another person just doesn't have. So some of you might not know that feeling of discouragement or a loss of ability to cope with life. You might consider depression a sign of weakness. Well, if that's you, then this word will equip you to actually serve others who do suffer regular seasons of deep and lonely, painful sadness. However, really, we are all on the scale somewhere. Elijah's nature is like ours. Not some of our natures, all of our nature. That is, he was a fallen man in a fallen world. And whether you experience it for a day or a month, or whether you experience it in ongoing waves as a regular condition in life, you know or will know at some stage the dark night of the soul to some extent. From the youngest in here to the oldest, you will know what the psalmist means when he says in Psalm 42, Why are you so cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Because nobody has the cornering, corner on suffering. Suffering is relative and everybody suffers, which means everyone can sympathize to some extent. If one person cannot speak to another because they have not suffered to the same extent, then no one would speak to anyone about anything. And that's exactly what Satan wants. He wants us to isolate from others in our suffering. He also wants us to, to wrongly and proudly think our suffering is more than anyone else. No one has suffered like me, so no one can inform me about it. I'm the authority on this subject. Well, no. The Bible is emphatic that all Christians will suffer loss and trials of various kinds, as James tells us in James 1. We are in the same boat, we are on the same team, and we face the same enemies of Satan and sin and the world. Now, 1 King 19 begins with Elijah's spiritual depression. That's the first heading if you look in your handout outline. Verse 4, have a look at verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my, away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. Elijah had gone from the top of the mountain of victory over the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel in chapter 18 to the bottom of the valley under the broom tree of defeat in chapter 19. He lies down exhausted and despondent even to the point of death. You might have felt that. It is enough, Lord. Too much. I want to give up this job. I want to give up this marriage, this church, this life. It's just too hard. And though this condition seems sudden for Elijah, it actually doesn't happen overnight. It is a result of several factors. And so what I want to do in this, in this first section is take some time to draw out what these factors are as we seek to understand Elijah's and our own spiritual depression. There's ingredients at play here. Firstly, physical causes affected Elijah's emotional and spiritual state. He was exhausted from years on the run, from the battle at Mount Carmel, with running from Ahab. He's physically wiped out from ministry. You'll find that pastors will tell you, on a Monday... Is, is the most likely time we actually feel depression. 
wiped out from ministry, overwhelmed. Elijah was also lonely. He'd lacked good physical companionship for a long time. You see, he even left his servant behind and went alone to that broom tree. See, brothers and sisters, we are, we are whole beings, mind, body, and will. And there are many times physical as well as spiritual causes influence depression. Some people will suffer with illnesses which affect their mood. Simple as that. Some of you are simply physically exhausted from overwork in the home or in the workplace, but school. Some people are physically wired to feel blue easily and they might even need some medication to help them think clearly enough to read God's Word in those periods of darkness. Some people need to eat better and get out and exercise to feel better because healthy eating and exercise are good for the body and soul. And so you see, physical causes can contribute to spiritual depression. Also, Elijah experiences deep despair because of wrong expectations. Wrong expectations. Remember, Elijah had just witnessed and participated in God's powerful victory at Mount Carmel. God had heard his prayers for a demonstration of power against the prophets of Baal, and God had answered. If you flip back very quickly to 1 Kings 18 and verse 37, you can see what had happened. Verse 37 of 1 Kings 18, Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. So Elijah's prayer was answered, and then the people repented. Verse 39, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So prayers answered, people repenting. People are prostrate on the floor here. Reverence and awe at the one true God. Mass conversions, true worship. And there's more. False teachers are destroyed. Prayers answered, people repenting, false teachers are destroyed. Verse 40, and Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. And then Elijah's prayers are answered again as he prays for rain in verse 45. And finally, verse 46 of chapter 18, we see Elijah outrunning Ahab back to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. He gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Elijah knew the power, presence, and providence of God. This was a decisive physical and spiritual victory. And yet he ends up under a broom tree, running for his life and despairing of his life. What went wrong? Elijah had the wrong expectation that in light of this triumph, all would now be well. Baal worship will be eliminated. People are worshipping. In other words, prayers answered, enemy defeated. That was it. The decisive battle had been won, so the war was over. But that was not what happened. Ahab, Ahab went back and told Jezebel, beginning of chapter 19, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life 
as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Ahab, a spineless man, led by his wife, Jezebel, an evil woman, a formidable enemy who would stop and nothing to get her way. She saw her husband defeated and wanted to destroy Elijah. And so what we see is this man of great courage and faith become disappointed and discouraged very quickly by the threatening news that he receives, and suddenly his courage is gone. You see, even though the decisive battle had been won, the war was not over, as Elijah had expected. Wrong expectations, you see. Think of uh, sport, for instance. Let's think of the greatest sport, soccer. The winning goal could be scored in the 60th minute of the game, but the game lasts 90 minutes. The decisive goal is scored, but the battle continues to the end. So don't miss that. Great victory and advance is the preparation for the ongoing battle for the Christian pilgrim. Don't lose a clear view of the reality of the spiritual life. Spiritual progress is often met with spiritual attack and resistance. Are you depressed based on a wrong view of the Christian life? Life hasn't worked out as you'd hoped, with everything going smoothly, with a fairy tale marriage, or perfect health, or financial security. Brothers and sisters, know this. The decisive victory for us has not been won on Mount Carmel, but on a hill, on a cross at Calvary. Christ has defeated sin and Satan, But the holy war against indwelling sin and Satan's attacks and life in a fallen world will continue for us until we die or Jesus comes again. So we see that Elijah's experience of deep despair, this spiritual depression, has physical causes, but also is caused by wrong expectations. And then we see that he experiences this deep despair because of fear of the enemy. In one sense, he had good reason to fear this enemy. Jezebel had been killing prophets. But Elijah had faced down hundreds, 450. And now he runs from one person? Elijah, courageous beyond limits, but there was an evil here that made him personally afraid. If you think that you will not face trouble in this life, and if you expect better than you get, it can lead to disappointment and then to fear. And you might find yourself running and avoiding things you should face. You know, putting up barriers and not dealing with present sin or past circumstances which have affected you. Friends, it's true that we can face great dangers and trials in faith and then be afraid of something quite innocuous. Instead of confronting his fear, Elijah fled for his life. And if you run, friends, if you run from something, You can never deal with it if you run from it. This then is a formula for depression. You let that enemy which attacks you define you. Elijah fled in his fear and carried with him a situation he refused to deal with. Is that you today? Is there a situation you're refusing to deal with because you fear it, but you're carrying it with you? See, this then threatens to pursue Elijah and determine the course of his life. Just look at where it led him, to Bathsheba, where he left his servant in verse 3. And then he goes beyond Bathsheba and into the wilderness. Of course, if your antenna are up, 
You might remember this phrase from Dan to Beersheba in the Old Testament is used to define the whole of the promised land and God's blessing to his people. So in other words, Elijah flees to the boundaries and then beyond the boundaries of God's blessing. He places himself outside of the realm of God's blessing and says, it is enough now, too much, I want to die. Often when you refuse to face the thing you fear, you begin to be paralyzed and unproductive and overwhelmed by life. And some of you here may have come very close to, to saying that, God, take me. I feel so discouraged beyond restoration. But have you dealt with the thing you fear? Can you see that you might be running from something that you need to deal with, something that threatens the kingdom of God in your life right now? Of course, if you're like Elijah, you can't even see that. All you can see is the darkness. So there are physical causes. There are wrong expectations. And then there's fleeing fears instead of facing them. All factors, you see, in this spiritual depression. But at this point, let's ask this question. Is there a kind of spiritual depression that has a holy origin? A kind of spiritual depression that has a holy origin. Is it not true that the Bible says that we have a, a high priest who is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses? I think we need to remember that in Gethsemane, Jesus plunged into a type of spiritual depression. Mark 14, verse 33 and he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. So here we see Jesus contemplating the utterly hopeless disintegration of human life because of sin and the trampling of God's glory. And he felt in Gethsemane the loneliness of that moment he felt the feeling of no one else knowing how he felt. He saw darkness and he entered in as the one who would bring light. Even as he recoiled at the thought of facing, drinking the cup of his father's wrath in the place of sinners, such was the darkness that Jesus entered. And yet it was utterly holy of Jesus to feel this way. Even as he is about to provide the hope for all sinners everywhere, when he would go to the cross die in their place, and rise again to grant eternal life for anyone who will repent of their sins and bow the knee and believe in Him. Jesus was fully human, you see. Though never experiencing sinful depression, He can sympathize with holy depression. Elijah? Elijah was a righteous man. He loved God. He hated sin. So there's a kind of holy depression that you can feel when you, when you mourn your sin. Maybe a slowness of sanctification. The thought of unbelieving family members. The marginalization of Christians in society. Wicked attacks on the biblical family. Abortion and so on. So Elijah's spiritual depression, like ours, was maybe a mixture of unholy and holy. Physical, wrong expectations, fear, and perhaps an ingredient of holy mourning. But he was suffering from depression ultimately because he lost his spiritual rootedness. He lost his spiritual rootedness. You notice that in chapter 17, in verse 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to 
Elijah and told him, depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook. And you see that there is a pattern in Elijah's life of hearing God's word and being directed by it. Now in verse 3 of chapter 19, he runs from Jezebel's word before hearing God's word. He acts before he listens. He's lost sight of his God and he's lost sight of God's word. The biggest thing for everybody in here is to be directed by God's Word, to see your experience through the lens of the Bible. As Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, listen less to yourself and preach more to yourself. Lloyd-Jones says this, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is because you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now the man in Psalm 42, this is how he dealt with it. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Look at Elijah. Under this tree, wants to die. He's acted without consulting God's word, and he's listening to how he feels. And further on, we we read in verses 10 and again in verse 14, He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's not quite true, Elijah. He was not alone. 7,000 have not bowed the knee. We see that in verse 18. One altar has been restored. All the prophets have not been destroyed. You see, what's happened is Elijah has lost a, a clear sight of Carmel and God's greatness and God's word. His problems then have increased in his mind's eye. He's lost perspective. He's taken his eye off God's word. Now he's self-pitying, self-justifying, and blowing things way out of proportion. Isn't that what we do when we lose our spiritual rootedness, friends? So here we have it. Elijah's spiritual depression. There were physical causes, wrong expectations which caused it, unfaced fears which caused it, righteous mourning which caused it, but ultimately, a loss of spiritual rootedness. And so perhaps now, as we just pause, we can see that the reasons for spiritual depression are not one-dimensional, friends. And that helps us to understand it and then deal with it in our own hearts, and in the hearts of brothers and sisters around us. But how we deal with it, we need to then look at how God deals with his children in spiritual depression. So to finish, we're going to look briefly at how God deals with his children. First, which is point two on the handout, we see God's tender care. God's tender care. Here we got a spiritually depressed Elijah under the tree asking God to end his life. And what does God do? He sends him some company with a hot meal and a drink. That's what God does. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, 
There was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. God meets Elijah's physical needs of loneliness and hunger. He gives him companionship, an angel, a friend who can minister, not a depressed person. Misery loves company and miserable company. That is true, isn't it? But God gives Elijah an angel. If you are by nature melancholic, don't spend too much time with the melancholy. You need someone who can minister well to you, not drain you. And ministering to the suffering in this way must also meet a physical need. The angel gives Elijah physical company. And the angel gives Elijah physical food and drink. He doesn't give him a dissertation on God's sovereignty straight away. He gives him a cake and a drink. But then he awakens him a second time and instructs him about a journey. And the strength of that food keeps him going for another 40 days as he heads towards the Mount of the Lord. So we minister to those who are depressed with physical company that meets physical needs. Sometimes we just want to fix a depressed person straight away and we just want to get to the bottom of the issues, don't we? But that person perhaps just needs you to sit down with them over a coffee and listen. The pain's too raw for anything else. Husbands, if your wife is feeling a little emotional and the hormones are kicking in, don't try and fix her by telling what her what her problem is. Give her a hug and make her a cup of tea. The British cure, top cup of tea, obviously, but, but you know what I'm saying. Even in a good way, we want to kind of fix the problem, but just a hug, reassurance, physical need, physical company. But having done that, there is a time to speak and get that person moving towards the Lord, as the angel does with Elijah. So you see God's tender care for Elijah. Elijah's not just a victim of natural causes and circumstances or even a holy depression. He is running away from what he should be doing. He's actually at this point in sin, and he has stepped outside of the boundaries of God's blessing. Yet God shows tender care and gives him company, a meal, and something to drink and a word of encouragement to get him going. But alongside his tender care, we also see God's tough love. It's point three, God's tough love. You see, Elijah came to Horeb where the prophet Moses had stood, you remember, and God had shown him his glory. And now at this point, God reorients the depressed prophet Elijah to his word, verse 9 there, that is Horeb, he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? You're not supposed to be here. And Elijah makes his complaint, or puts his case to God, you know, I've been jealous for you, verse 10, we've already seen it, I've been jealous for you, uh, People of Israel have forsaken you and thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with this. I, I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. 
you've got to note that there, even in all of his depression, Elijah's still talking to God under the broom tree when he asked to die or out on Mount Horeb where he makes this even self-pitying statement, keep talking to God when you are sad. Tell him how you feel because God won't crush you. Elijah is his child. He is a believer. He is a great servant of God, but he is a man with a nature like ours. And God remembers his frame as he remembers our frame. And he knows that we are a mixture of obedience and disobedience. God could roar at him now, but in verses 11 and 12, he appears to him in an unusual way, not in the wind or in an earthquake or in a fire, but in a low whisper, verse 12. And God calmly says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Oh, the patience of God, hey, with his children. The patience of God. The love, the tenderness, but oh, the tough and unrelenting love in pursuit of our good and his glory. And when Elijah repeats his case in verse 14, God patiently repeats himself. Go back, Elijah. Verse 15, the Lord said, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Go back, Elijah. Return to your duty. See, God's love is tender, but it's also tough. He rebukes Elijah. He straightens him out. He gives him a task, and he gives hope for the future. It's not about you, Elijah. It's about my kingdom. Others will carry on this work, and I send you to even anoint another man to take your place. That is Elisha. He shall be a prophet in your place. Friends, we need to realize that we are here by divine permission and grace only. And when we get downcast and melancholy, and we're not doing the things we know we should be doing, we've often made this thing, this Christian life, about us. But it's about God. And He will use us for ministry, or He will take us out of ministries and replace us with others according to His sovereign will and grace and wisdom. No one is indispensable. You'll remember Pastor Clint last week. He was talking about uh, elders. I'd actually stepped out with my little grandson, Charlie, to take him to the bathroom. And I came back in. I didn't have any context. And I literally came through the door to sit down again. And, 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 and Clint was saying, and the reason why we're bringing new elders in is the older elders are going to die. <laughs> and I'm the oldest elder, so... <laughs> He's putting me in uh, an early grave. <laughs> but no one is indispensable. Elijah, the, perhaps one of the greatest of prophets, Elisha will take it on. But there's hope here, you see. Anoint others, Elijah. Here's your task. Your work in my name is not lost. Your work is my work, and my word will continue beyond you. And part of your work is to prepare others to carry it on. You see, beyond this generation, beyond our generation, 
beyond his own generation, Elijah is allowed to see that there is at least one man prepared to take on that baton. And so to the discouraged here today, this is a word. Get up and do the will of the Lord by pouring into someone else. By pouring into someone else. By blessing someone else. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 1, that you feel this burden of suffering even unto death. Why? So that you might rely upon God and not yourself. And then do what? Comfort others with the comfort that he gives you. You think life's passed you by? You feel defeated? The darkness is dark. But God says, listen to me. Go back to what you should be doing. You've got a glorious task. Build others for my kingdom. Build others for my kingdom. One of the great cures for spiritual depression. Some of you in here who experience the greatest darkness need to realize of what great use you are to God in his kingdom work. And you can look back at the history of the church and see some of the God's servants that have been used most profoundly have suffered depression most deeply. Charles Spurgeon, William Cowper, many, many. But here's the kicker. Can you be happy if God raises up your friend to a notable ministry instead of you? Can you joyfully serve your friend to that end? Elijah, Elijah, Elijah to anoint Elisha. Because when you can do that, friends, then you've begun to grasp humility and holiness. And that is true victory. Elisha will replace Elijah and God's purposes will go on because God's tough love is always good for our souls. So you see, Elijah's spiritual depression, it wasn't a dead end. It was the sphere in which God displayed his sovereign love. There were experiences that led to it and causes the holy and unholy, spiritual and natural, that led to this spiritual depression, but it is not where God left Elijah, nor where he wants us to stay. His love is tender and his love is tough in bringing us back to his word and his will. His love is tender and his love is tough as he lays us aside and uses us to build others up. And his love is tender and his love is tough as he shows us his glory in this life and the next. Because God always fulfills his sovereign purpose. That's my fourth and final point. God always fulfills his sovereign purpose. And we see it in a couple of ways here to finish. Firstly, his sovereign purpose for Elijah. See, God doesn't just lay Elijah aside and throw him on the heap like a used car. Do you remember how Elijah leaves this world? Remember how he leaves? He, God whisks him off in a whirlwind and there's chariots of fire straight to heaven. It's the way I want to go, isn't it? And this Elijah, who maybe thought his work didn't matter, maybe like some of you today, oh, it's, my life doesn't matter, my work doesn't matter. This Elijah got to see something special. Remember Matthew 17. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he, that is Jesus, was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. 
And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Friends, Elijah got to see the glory of God, not in the wind or an earthquake or fire or even a whisper, but in the face of Jesus Christ. And this will be true of every single Christian in here today. There is an eternal weight of glory that Paul says awaits the suffering believer. First John 3, we will be like him. Why? Because we shall see him as he is. You will see the glory of God in Jesus Christ face to face one day. Elijah is no more special than you. He is a man with a nature like ours. God has an unfailing sovereign purpose for you to see Christ and to be like him. And then secondly, God has an unstoppable sovereign purpose to display his glory in the salvation of the nations. Verse 18, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. God did save a remnant through Elijah. And the apostle Paul quotes this very same verse in Romans 11, where he says, do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, Paul says, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. You see, a remnant saved by the grace of the gospel, a remnant of Jew and Gentile from all the nations. Elijah's work was not wasted, and Elijah was commissioned to work to the end and even work himself out of a job. And so it is with us. There's a remnant. There's a great commission. There are others to be brought in from the nations in order to bow to the name of Jesus. And you and I, little old you and I, with our weak natures, just like Elijah's, prone to spiritual depression, unfailingly loved by God, you and I have the privilege of being his instruments in the task. What a thing to be a Christian. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us today, which is always tender and always tough. I pray that you would continue to do deep heart work amongst us and fill us with your perspective on this life and your purposes for us in this life. Encourage the discouraged this morning. Help us to minister to one another. Keep our eyes fixed on Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to stand and sing once more.